0: following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 2nd, at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's good to see you guys. If you're a guest with us this morning, let me add my welcome. Uh, My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I get the privilege this morning of spending time with us in God's Word, and as we get going and you get settled, let's, um, let's get our brains engaged, uh, play a little uh, word association game. How about that? We'll just get our brains going, right? You like those? We'll, we'll start easy and then we'll ramp up the difficulty. Uh, first one, if I said or I asked you, uh, what do a loaf of bread, a jar of peanut butter, and a jar of grape jelly all have in common, what would you say? Yeah, yeah. Three essential ingredients to the greatest sandwich ever invented, right? (laughs) Simple, all right? Ramp up the difficulty a little bit, all right? What do pleasing God, spiritual maturation, and sexual behavior all have in common? Told you I was ramping it up a little bit. (laughs) They are all three the essential themes in our text for this morning. <laughs> so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we'll pick up Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica right there in verse 1, where we left off last week. Paul writes this, finally then, brothers, Paul's not finishing his letter, right? Right? Remember, Paul was a preacher at heart. Finally, it doesn't always mean I'm wrapping up. Paul isn't wrapping up. He's just transitioning from just the profuse overflowing of gratitude to God for the grace at work in the lives of this church, pointing it out over and over and over again. He's now transitioning to that which we saw last week he's most eager to do, which is help strengthen them in their faith, to help them in things he had not had a lot of time with them to encourage them in. And so now in this letter, he's moving on to a few things that for sure Timothy brought back to him in his report that needed to be encouraged and strengthened. So finally then, I'm, I'm not finishing, I'm just kind of shifting gears, brothers. But even there, you you hear his continued affection for them. I think that's the seventh or the ninth time. I can't remember that he's referred to this church with this kind of affection. We ask and we urge you, right? So there's a weight and an urgency to what he's about to communicate. We ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus I want you to remember what I'm about to tell you, Paul says, isn't coming just from me. It's not my ideas. What I'm about to remind you of, and we'll see as we read through, that I've already taught you when I was with you, but I'm not going to remind you of, this comes with the very weight and authority of Jesus himself. These are his words, his ideas, not mine, right? So we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus First. That as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, right? remember, this is with his weight and his authority. And and here's what Paul is saying. When we were with you, remember when we were with you and I was there and and we were opening up the scriptures with you over and over in those days, the, the sweetness of that time that we were together. We taught you that it was fundamental as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, that you live in a manner or a way or with a life or a walk that is pleasing to God. Right for Paul, that was a first principle. He was only with them a short time, but even in that short time, he had pressed this reality home. And I think as we just just kind of stop to consider it, because it's very easy for us to gloss over it, especially those of us who, if your story is anyone like mine, that you grew up in the church and you were just very familiar with all of these things and hearing all of these things. I, I think the idea that we miss, and I tend to miss when I think about this, is that. Our lives are meant to bring joy and pleasure to God. Like, God takes pleasure and joy in your life, right? As you and I continue to increasingly receive and take in His Word as true and trustworthy. as we saw weeks ago earlier in the letter we we take it in as, as precious as necessary our lives become increasingly shaped by it our hearts become increasingly surrendered to it and our walk our manner of living pleases brings pleasure to joy God delights the way in which we live. So Paul is first reminding them, fundamental to their life is to live pleasing to God. And I think as we even consider the idea, we've got to be very clear, and maybe this is just because of, of... my own life and, and, and what this does for me and what I've experienced growing up in the church. But I, I feel this compulsion and pressure to try to be clear here that Paul is not reminding them and telling them this and, and saying keep trusting, keep obeying so that God will love you. He's not reminding them of this fundamental reality of the Christian life so that God will love them. Paul is urging them to live in such a way that pleases God in response for what God has already done for them, right? It's a complete reorientation of living, right? It's not natural to us. It requires supernatural intervention. What's natural for us, what's natural for me, is for my life, my desires, the delights, the joys that I receive to be completely reoriented on myself, to live for my joy and pleasure as I define it. Paul is reminding them of the fundamental reorientation that takes place when one who was dead in sins has been brought to new life in Christ. The fundamental orientation of our life has been changed, right? And you see it even here when he writes it. It's easy to miss, but it's right there. It's in verse 1. When he says, finally, then, brothers. That word, then, is really important. Other translations translate it, and I think maybe for the message that Paul is writing, a more accurate way. When they translate it, therefore. Finally, therefore. Therefore. I mean, given what we have already said, what I've already reminded you, given that the gratitude that I have expressed to God for what he's done for you, his calling of you, his making you alive, his changing your life, the impact your life is having on those around you, or I'm even hearing about it in other cities, the way you've received his word, you treasure his word, you take his word in for all that he's done in your life by his grace and continues to do. Therefore, out of that, In response to that, we live in a way that's pleasing to God. He said it more specifically to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, when he said, Jesus died for all so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. That's that's pretty clear right there, right? Those who have received the new life that God has given through Christ now live for him. The orientation of our life is for his pleasure, for his joy. And so I want you to hear when Paul is calling them to this, to live in a way that's pleasing to God, he's not calling them to... Some new layer uh, uh, of moralism, or some new labor, or layer uh, of legalism. He's he's calling them to a life of response to the love and the grace of God in Christ. Not so that God would love them more, but because of the depth for which He has already loved them—the depth that's inherent in the message that we call the gospel, the good news. The knowledge and the sweetness that God has already loved me at my most unlovable. I could not have been more unlovable. And he loved me. So much so that he sent his only son. The only truly lovable person. Right? I wish I had a better way of describing it, but this is the way in which He goes. The only truly lovable one he sent To live the life that I was created to live, but I haven't lived. And then to willingly die in my place and take upon his body the judgment of God for the life that I have lived. The only truly lovable one died in my place for my sin and three days later was raised to new life and has held out the promise of his life to me. His promise of forgiveness of my sin. His promise of an eternal security and an eternal life in his presence with all joy forever. I wasn't looking for him. I wasn't out there seeking him, trying to find him. I wasn't even aware at the deepest part of my soul how utterly unlovable I really was. But it was in that place that he came to me. He gave me eyes to see him and ears to hear his message of forgiveness. That he forgives me. He held out his promises to me. He secured for me an eternal reward that I didn't earn and I don't deserve. That only, only he, the truly lovable one, has ever deserved. Friends, that was the story for everyone in this church in Thessalonica when they had heard the good news of the gospel proclaimed through Paul and God had given them ears to hear it and God had given them confidence. He had given them faith to actually believe it and take it in. It's their story. It's my story for all who in here who have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It's your story. And yes, having now seen Jesus and tasted his forgiveness and felt his security, yes, I want to live my life in a way that brings him joy, that pleases him. And it's not legalism. It's not the weight of law. It's not morality and the weight of morality. It's love. It's relationship. It's, it's direction and, and commands in a life that come from a good and loving father. Who wants what is best for me and knows what is best for me. And in this case, it's it's him. <laughs> and he's given himself to me. Right? Paul is reminding them, it's fundamental to their life as a follower of Jesus. They live in a way to please God, but, but not so that they earn anything from him. It's, it's the overflow of gratitude. It's the overflow of the relationship of love that he's Already established with them. He gets joy from our life. That's an amazing reality. What value it speaks of and confers onto our walk, confers onto our life. I'll be honest with you, I just don't think about it enough. I just don't consider it enough. But for Paul, it was a first principle. In the short period of time that he was with them, he tried to press this home to them so much so that now he's reminding them of that. It's encapsulating of the entirety of the Christian life. And for that reason, I even wrote down in between services, I think I probably should just spend an entire Sunday on that because it's so important. But Paul has other things he's trying to press on here in this thought in the letter. So I'll just ask you the question I had to ask myself through the week. Who are you living to please? Or said another way, what is the orientation of the way in which you live your life? Is it oriented in order to bring pleasure or joy to God? Or has it turned back on yourself? Does it help at all? And you can think about it through the week. It may right now, it may may not in the moment, but does it help at all or impact at all? How you view his commands to you to know that they come from the hand of a good and loving father. Paul said, "I, I want you to continue to walk just as you're already doing, that you do so more and more. I see it in you already, Paul says. I can see it in many of you. I can see it in the church. I see it. Your desire is to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. Paul says, I see it. What I want is for you to keep after it, to keep going, to not give up, right? Because there's something that God has in mind for you, and that gets to the second ingredient here in the text, Paul reminds him in verse three, for this is the will of God. A massive statement, right? This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, don't read any further. We'll stop right there, right? This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is just the word we we're using to translate here into English the idea of maturation. Technically, it's literally, the, this is the will of God for you, your holiness, right? That's what it means. Sanctification is the process by which you and I are increasingly conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. That his character is reflected in us and through us. And that we are increasingly made more holy as God has already declared us holy, right? Right? And here's what I want us to catch in this because I think it's really important. Right, sanctification or the process of spiritual maturation. It is a process. And I emphasize that because you and I tend to get very impatient. In life, period. It doesn't really matter in, in life, we get impatient. We like quick, we like immediate. When things are not resulting, the way that we want them to result and the time frame we want them to result in, we also give up. We quit and we turn and we head in a different direction, right? Spiritual maturation is a process. And you and I need to have a picture of the process. It's a lifelong process. It's not a year-long process. It's not a two-year program you can get into in the church. It's not a six month relationship that you can have with someone that helps you with something. Spiritual maturation is a lifelong process, right? But it does have an end. There is an end to the process. The process ends on that glorious day when Jesus returns, when we see him and are made fully and finally like him. But it's a process. And 15 years ago, I sat, 15, maybe 16, I sat in a classroom, taking a class about this very thing, and I heard a professor say say something that, that set my heart free with regards to spiritual maturation in ways I didn't know I needed to be free, ways I didn't even know that I was bound up. And this is what he said. He said, what matters most on the journey of sanctification, so the journey of spiritual maturation, is not how fast you go or how far you've gone. What matters most is the direction that you're headed in. That's what matters most. He, he Then he was an artist. He, he painted this illustration on the, on the overhead projector. We saw overhead projectors like 20 years ago, you know, those, those transparencies that I could in no way replicate because my mind doesn't work that way. But in the end... He had created a a taxonomy, so to speak, of the process of sanctification, how we can understand ourselves in various seasons and times along this journey. And it was so helpful and so freeing to my heart that I'm going to try to condense it and share some of it with you in hopes that it will do the same thing for your life, right? So here's the picture I'm gonna give you because it's the best I can do. I want you to imagine yourself in your car driving down I-95, right? It's miserable, right? (laughs) This is the spiritual life, I-95, all right? Get in your car and you're driving down I-95, right? There are times on I-95, like if you're going north on I-95, that you hit the HOV lanes, right? Or if you're in DC and you're coming south, you hit those HOV lanes and you get in those things and there's not another car on the road. I mean, it is pedaled down, nothing in your way. Like, you're just gone. You look up, and you're home. Yeah, celebrate. (laughs) Well, there are times in the spiritual maturation process when our maturation works that way. It's like leaps and bounds. Like, I woke up today, and my heart was completely just tied up and enslaved to a, a particular sin. And the work of the Holy Spirit in me opened my eyes to it. I saw it. I was convicted of it. I confessed it. I turned to God, and... It has not bothered me since, right? There are times in which we, we take these leaps and these bounds and we wonder, who was I two weeks ago? Who was I a month ago? I can't even imagine it, right? There are times in the life it's like that. Other times, it's like driving on I-95, right? And, and it's not very busy, right? There's cars that are out there, but you got it on cruise control, 70 miles an hour, and you're just making your way. I like to drive on cruise control. I get really frustrated when people are like, you're going too slow and I have to get off cruise control. But you're on cruise control, like 70 miles an hour, you're just making your way. It's just steady, right? You're engaging with the Lord in His Word. You're seeing things about Him and His character and His nature and His grace. Your life is taking on this reflection of Him, and your desires are wanting to please Him, and patterns and behaviors in your life are changing, and you're reading good books about who He is, and you're building these relationships with others where you're encouraging each other, and it's just steady just steady along the way, right? Then there are other times you, you pull onto I-95 and you're not in the HOV lane. It's not steady at cruise control. You hit I-95 at 530. Everybody else is already out there, right? And you're going forward, but you're not getting anywhere fast, right? It's jammed up. Well, there are times in the spiritual maturation process that are like that. It it doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere quickly, but what matters is that you're still headed in the right direction, right? And all of you probably have known if you've been driving at all in this area, right? There are times when you get on I-95 and it has nothing to do with you, but it's not going anywhere. It's not just busy at 530. It's like gridlock. Uh, you could get out of your car and you could measure and you can see the tire hadn't even gone around one revolution, Right? <laughs> You're probably turning the car off and starting to take a nap. Well, there are seasons in the process of spiritual maturation that are like that as well, right? God in his kindness, who began a good work in you, wakes you up. And you get back on the road and you get moving. Sometimes in that gridlock, if you're like us, we've been on trips before, we've gone on 95, and our phone tells us that there's something coming up along the way, and you see that line, it's solid red, right? We get off. And maybe there's an outlet ball. You know, it's got Cinnabon and Five Guys and all kinds of stuff, right? (laughs) Chipotle, if we're lucky. You get off, and you forget you're even going somewhere. Totally distracted. Now you're wandering through all these things, right? It happens in the spiritual process as well. We can get distracted. The lure of of false promises get us headed in this direction over here, and we forget where we were actually going. And Again, the kindness of God to to wake us up, to get us back onto the road. And what matters then is that we're headed back in the right direction, right? The taxonomy goes on. You can keep going. You've probably all, if you've driven long enough, had the experience of heading down 95 or another interstate only to realize an hour and a half in that you were going the wrong direction, right? This is what sin does in the process, right? Right? We head in the wrong direction. When we thought something was gonna take us somewhere, maybe faster, or maybe maybe get us what we wanted in a different way, and we find ourselves way off over here. But again, he who began a good work in his kindness is faithful to finish the work that he began. Even when there are seasons in our life when we say, I know you said get on 95 and head this direction. I'm not doing it. I'm going this way. This is what I want. This is the way I want to get there. Even in seasons of revolt, we may not be able to avoid the pain. We may not be able to avoid many of the consequences and fallout of our sin and behavior. But he who is faithful picks us up and cleans us off and gets us back headed in the right direction. Right, when it comes to spiritual maturation, there's no formula, there's no secret, there's no technique. Nothing like that can guarantee that you'll get a certain distance at a certain pace, right? That's, that's not the way it is. It's, it's the faithfulness of he who began the work in us, who's promised to bring it to fruition. All, right, all that I was learning 16 years ago was nothing new to that class or that professor, that was just a 16-year-ago teaching to encapsulate what had captured the hearts of the disciples that Jesus taught, what had captured the message of Paul to the churches, what had captured Luther in the middle of the Reformation. I mean, it was Luther who said, this life, your life, this life right now, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's not health, but it's healing. It's not being, but becoming. It's not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing towards it, right? Right? We're going towards it. What matters most isn't how fast we get there, how far we've gone, but that we're headed in the right direction, right? The process, Luther said, is not finished, but it's going on. It's not the end, but this life is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Prince Paul loved this church so much that he wrote, and he said, I'm telling you now, I'm reminding you of something I already told you. I was with you. It was so important. I told you when I was with you the first time. God's will for your life is that you increasingly reflect the image and character of his son. And he wills for you and works in you the very thing that ultimately brings pleasure to him and joy to you. The life and the walk that pleases God and brings him joy is a life and a walk that is the result of the ongoing work of God in your life, conforming you to the image and likeness of his son, the very will that he has for you and has committed himself to. That's amazing. My friends, that is the fundamental dynamic of the Christian life. Christian, you're here this morning. I want you to understand that God has planned a good work in you. We tend to always hear, God has planned a good work for you. Paul told that to the Ephesian church, right? But I want you to know that God has planned a good work in you. He's already started it. He is presently and currently at work doing it. He's doing it in you by his Holy Spirit. And he's going to finish it. And I don't think it's theologically inaccurate to say that he has staked his glory on bringing that work to completion. I hope that's encouraging. He is at work bringing to fruition the very thing that he has willed most for your life that results in that which brings him joy and pleasure and you joy and delight. And what a calling he's given us, right? And Paul's not starting off light here. He's reminding them. This is fundamental to what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And, and then he's going to put some, 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 some skin and muscle on this stuff, right? That's the skeleton. He, he's going to start putting some, some muscle on this thing. From the second half of verse 3 all the way through the rest of the letter, Paul's going to talk specifically about how our life, our walk, is meant to increasingly reflect the character of Jesus in a distinct way and he's going to talk about a few areas of life that were very, very important and tangible for them, and they still are for us. Paul's going to talk about the way we live in distinction with regards to our sexual behavior, the way we love and relate to one another, the way we see and do our actual work, and the way we understand and respond to the reality of death and dying. That's the rest of the letter. These were massive In the church in Paul's day, right, early Christians lived radically different ways in those areas than everyone else around them, right? You don't have to go too far to read too many stories of early church history to read the stories of Christians who were going to their death for following Jesus. Maybe the fire was already burning, and they were to stake them to it, whatever it may have been, throwing them into a, a pit of vipers or lions, whatever the punishment was, and they would go to their death singing hymns, writing hymns. Their understanding of death and dying was so different than everyone else around them that it caused people to just be like, what in the world? Right? An early church father wrote about the Christian community in the Greco-Roman world, right, that we share our table with all. Like our resources, how we work and, and what we garner from that work, our resources, our table, our home, our, our very lives, we share with all. Those things aren't so sacred that we, that we don't share them, we don't hold them so tight to ourselves, right? But we don't share our bed with all. There was a sacredness to their sexual behavior. Both stood so radically in opposition to the world around them that said, my life, my stuff, my work, my possessions, they're mine. My body, my sexuality, my behavior, whatever. It's just biology. It's just life. And Paul is going to address these things. And how a life lived pleasing to God as God continues to work out his character and the reflection of his son in our lives is meant to look. And how revolutionary it would be in a place like Thessalonica, as we'll see in a place like Richmond in the 21st century, right? And he starts here with sexual behavior because in Thessalonica, in the Greco-Roman world, they lived in a place that considered normal what God's word would call immoral, right? Sexual behavior was a part of nearly every major aspect or facet of life, right? Sexual activity was tied into religion. Many of the cults and many of the practices and sacrifices of the worship of the Greco-Roman world involved going to be with a temple prostitute, male or female. There wasn't just one gender, There were various civic responsibilities, civic activities that existed in the Greco-Roman world that involved some level of cultic prostitution as well. And it was taught, and I won't get into, I mean, we don't need to get into all the the various ways this played itself out, but it was taught even by the leading philosophers of the time that to a man, a, a wife was for children, a mistress was for his pleasure, In fact, there was a system for this in that day and time that would leave people, male and female, with having up to four to five regular sexual partners at a time, all with different mental and physical purposes. There was one activity, though, one behavior, that was condemned in that time, right? Anybody guess what it is? No, I don't have to guess. I'll tell you. It might not be what you think. It was for a man to have a sexual encounter with another man's wife or daughter. What you and I would commonly associate with adultery, that was roundly condemned in this day, but regularly practiced, right? And so it was out of this culture that this church was saved, set apart to be made holy and sanctified, and to live and to walk in a way not only pleasing to God, but that pleasing to God and that walk was distinct from the world around them and was to reflect something of God's nature and character to those in their place. So from the very beginning of Paul's time with them, he had to deal with this. He had to address sexuality. He had to address sexual behavior and and ethics and, and put it in a right Godward orientation for these people. He would have taught them as he has taught the other churches, and we know through his letters, he'd have gone back to Genesis 1, and helped him to see God's creation and institution of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman and the gift of sex to that covenant relationship. That sexual behavior is a gift from God. Sexual desire and sexual fulfillment is actually a gift from God. It has a place for that fulfillment to be fulfilled. And he would help them understand marriage with a Godward orientation the way that God had created it for the purposes with which God had created it. Which would mean that they, as the church, begin to live within God's constructs and boundaries for their joy. Their marriage, their monogamy, their sexual fulfillment within marriage would make them radically different than everyone else around them, right? They were going to stand out. Now, Paul is writing back to them, and he reminds them, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He doesn't say that you abstain from adultery. That was already commonly condemned, even though it was practiced. He used a different word. If you grew up in the church, you probably are familiar with it. It's the word pornea. It's the word from which we get pornography from. It's a it's a catch-all word for sexual activity outside of God's confines and structures of covenant marriage, right? So it's sexual activity. It could be physical, it could be visual, it could be mental, it could be fantasy. Paul said it is God's will and your growth and your spiritual maturation that you abstain, right? Because you live in a place that calls normal what God calls immoral. And you live in a place, in a time, that calls biblical morality and biblical sexual ethics absurd. Does this sound familiar? Right? You were not far removed here, right? Right? But here's the thing. Paul is going to fill out in this context kind of what he means when he talks about abstaining. He's going to give a context and a reason. So while we could go all through the scriptures to, to understand a larger picture of, of, of sexual ethics and behavior as God has created and God intends, I'm going to stick with Paul, all right? Just right here in this letter, right? That's what we're going to look at. He's going to fill it in. Look at verse 4 that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. All right, so let's reason with what he just said. What he just said is that when you and I give into lustful passion, which gives rise to sexual immorality, all that falls into that term, when we give into lustful passion, we're acting like someone who doesn't know God. That's what Paul is saying. And what is at stake is the honor and holiness of the gift that God has given to humanity. To the passion of lust is the opposite of holiness and honor. We're going to reason with Paul's words right here, okay? Remember, sexual desire, sexual fulfillment, they're a gift from God. They're amazing And they have a place to be fulfilled in the covenant of marriage. And they are to be governed by two things in Paul's text right here. Honor, which deals with the relation with the other person. And holiness, which is regarding God. So the passions of lust that we give into, which give rise to sexual immorality, is what sexual desire becomes when honor and holiness are missing. This is what Paul is reasoning. Here's his argument. The passions of lust that give rise to sexual immorality, they're inherently dishonoring. God established the covenant of marriage for a man and a woman to honor and cherish each other within. Faithfulness to honor, cherish to love. And within that construct and confine and gift of God comes the gift of sexual fulfillment the place in which sexual fulfillment and sexual desire is free to run, to be fulfilled fully and regularly between a husband and a wife. And God has designed for that to actually strengthen the bonds of that relationship and commitment. So what I want you to understand, and if we had more weeks to go through it, and maybe it's worth it, and we just need to do it, is you've got to understand, especially if you grew up in a church like me, God has a very pro sex view of sexual desire and sexual activity. God is not anti sex. Like if you grew up in the 70s and 80s, like me in the church, you, you might have walked out of the church in, at 18 or 19 thinking that God hated sex. He doesn't, He created it. We'll get, if we have time, we'll get there. Like, just think about that. He created the desire, He created the context. For its fulfillment. Doesn't hate it at all, right? But to look at another person and to say, I want you to satisfy my sexual desire, but I don't want to make any covenant promises to you. All you're saying is, I want to use you for my pleasure. I want a piece of you that brings me joy. I don't want the whole you. Friends, that is truly dehumanizing. That is the height of dishonoring. Paul has already said, I continue to pray, that your love abound not just for one another but for all. The passions of lust that give rise to the sexual immorality, in whatever context it takes place in, it gives rise to the fruit of it, is ultimately dishonoring and dehumanizing. In no way, shape, form, or fashion is it ever seeking the highest good of anyone else. It's just selfish desire. And we know the context of Paul's, this is what he's thinking, because in verse 6 he says, Let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. So it's clearly an issue of love, of considering others, right? And the word behind that transgression is a word that carries the weight of of defrauding someone, right? Let no one in this context take from someone else something that doesn't rightly belong to you. That particular pleasure. Or manipulate or deceive others into giving you what you have no right to possess, right? Right? sexual immorality in all of its forms that's born out of the controlling lustful passions it's dishonoring it's dishonoring to others it's even dishonoring to yourself we don't have time it's a whole other morning first corinthians chapter 6 i think 18 through 20 right sexual sin is a sin against your own body and paul reminds them if you've already forgotten that your body is the temple of the holy spirit God cares about what you do with and how you treat your own body. And sexual immorality is a sin dishonoring that which God has given you. It's dishonoring to the other person. It's dishonoring to your own body. And even as Paul goes on in this text, it's dishonoring and disregarding of God. That's the holiness side. The lustful passions that give rise to sexual immorality are just sexual desire that are not governed by an ultimate regard for God. They're not being shaped and surrendered to his will. Which is where when you think about the fact that he created it for us. Like, I just can't get, like, we can't spend too much time on it, I gotta keep going. But just, if you just let yourself think about it, he created it as a gift for us. And then we somehow think that we're the ones that have the ultimate wisdom on how best use and be fulfilled by this thing. It's just foolishness in and of itself, right? Friends, God's vision for sex is a vision of love and honor, not selfishness and disregard. But it makes sense, and you can see that in a place that thinks that God doesn't exist, and sexual activity is just another animal appetite that we satisfy like every other appetite. And it would make sense then if that's the case that you'll just do whatever you can, whenever you can, however you can to be satisfied. But know this others are treating you the same way. It's a two way street, right? And in a context, in a place that doesn't believe that God exists and that sexual behavior is just an appetite to be fulfilled, however, whenever. Sexual normalcy and sexual behavior will just get boiled down to whatever is agreed upon to be safe and consensual. That's all it is. It's the world in which we find ourselves today. But it's not reflective of God's design for your flourishing and your fulfillment. And I will say this to those in the room who are not married. Friends, Jesus displayed the fullness of human life as an unmarried, celibate, single man. And what he helps us to see, even as we talk about this, is that sexual intimacy is not required for fulfillment or the fullest expression of humanity, right? The same things that Paul is talking about here, honor and holiness, love of God and love of neighbor are what are most necessary, And what that means, as we see in Jesus, is that the unmarried celibate life doesn't need to be a miserable life. It, too, is a sexual life because God created you a sexual being, but it's a sexual life being lived out in orientation to God and His will, right? What a testimony that is to a a place that calls God's will and God's wisdom absurd, And calls normal that which dishonors and dehumanizes others. Friends, God's vision for our sexual behavior is one of love and honor, right? Which is why, verse 5, I'm going to talk about this and then we'll wrap up. Man, I don't like clocks, (laughs) right? It's a lot of stuff in here, right? I didn't do this in the first service and I felt bad about it. So we'll talk about it here because it's probably what's most important, right? Verse 5 how do we go about pressing back against these lustful passions that give rise to sexual immorality? If they are key traits and key markers of those that don't know God, it only makes sense based on Paul's reasoning that the way in which you and I push back against these things is to know God more deeply. Everybody wants a strategy. Everybody wants a technique, right? Here it is. Know God more deeply. Not facts about him, right? I'm not talking about facts about God. It's a knowledge of God that humbles. Yeah, it's a knowledge of God that that stuns you. It's a knowledge of God that leaves you in awe, right? It's a knowledge of God that wins your heart. So even in, in what we've read, even in the first few verses of chapter four, it's knowing God's patience with you in his process. But he knows the process that he has you in. He knows the work that he's he's doing in your life. He's committed to your good and his glory. Know his patience towards you, even as as your journey along the process finds itself getting off on the exit ramp and getting stuck in this thing, that he's still patient with you, and his steadfast love is still committed to you. It means knowing more deeply the preciousness of what he's done as he's called you to himself. All that Paul has been so grateful for, knowing more deeply the God who committed Himself to you while you were utterly unlovable, while you were dead in sin and trespass, who made you alive, who called you to Himself and has committed Himself to you, knowing Him so deeply, you can say with Paul, "I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing, knowing and joining Jesus." Knowing God deeply so that you know his power for you in this. Paul gets to this in verse 8. He's taken up residence in your heart. The very resurrection power of the Holy Spirit that brought that which was not into creation in the beginning, that raised Jesus from the dead in the Gospels, that is the power of God to make new all creation on the day he returns. That's taken up residence in you. That's God's commitment to your sanctification, So it's knowing him more deeply, his patience with you, his power towards you, his preciousness, man. It's what Thomas Chalmers used to call the expulsive power of a new affection. Strategies can be good. Sometimes there are situations with regard to sexual immorality that we just have to step in and put things in place. But strategies and techniques like that don't have the staying power to change hearts. Think about this as a parent. I mean, if that's all we give our kids when it comes to living in the world in which we're in with regard to sexual behavior, we're we're already playing behind the eight ball. Because strategies and techniques and all those things, they don't have the staying power. It's knowing God. That's why I love what, what Piper said, John Piper said. He said about something else, I'm applying it to this. He said the way to fight is to feed your faith with the knowledge of an irresistibly glorious God. That's how you do it. If it's just strategies and techniques and you get some control over behaviors, it's great for a moment, but he gets no glory in that. That was all you. That was all your wisdom. But when it's born out of an increasing delight and love and affection and dependence upon him, he gets the glory. That has staying power. The way to fight is to feed your faith with the knowledge of an irresistibly glorious God. There's more that Paul has to say, but we don't have time this morning to get into it. I'll come back to it, right? The reality of it is, and the question behind it this morning is, do you know him this morning? Not just 10,000 facts about him, but has your heart been captured by him? Are you growing in your knowledge of his greatness? Are you sitting with the pictures of his son in the gospel, seeking to see and enjoy who God is for us in Jesus regularly? Are you reading good books about his character, his activity, his ways? Are you finding ways to be encouraging of one another in these things, helping one another the way Paul's been talking about so far in this letter, strengthening one another's faith, encouraging, fanning into flame, and blowing the wind of faith into one another's sails. Do you pray for a sensitive heart that that can be overwhelmed like this by a picture and a revelation of, of God's greatness? Friends, the way we fight is to feed our faith with the knowledge of an irresistibly glorious God. The way we fight is the way we walk. The more we feed on his glory, the more we feed on his delight, the more we feed on his grace, increasingly more we'll be conformed to the image and likeness of his Son. And the more we're conformed to the image and likeness of his Son, the more regularly, increasingly our walk, our life, even when it comes to our sexual behaviors and everything else, increasingly reflects him. And that brings pleasure to God. And that brings our deepest joy and delight to us. And that's a work that he's committed himself to. So much so, he's taken up a residence in your heart. He is committed to what he wills. He's committed to you and I becoming like his son. That is tremendous. Amen. Let me pray for us this morning, and, and then we will continue to respond to God's word. We'll pick back up where we left off. It's still going to be there next week. So pray that I'm still here next week, right? That's the thing. Heavenly Father, we, um, we acknowledge that, that the place and the time in which we find ourselves It's so easy to find our hearts drowning in ideas and pressures that call your will and your design absurd, that seek in every way, form, or fashion to push the buttons in our hearts and in our minds for us to call normal what... You say only dishonors us and dishonors others and disregards you. Holy Spirit, we, we need you at work in us to, to amplify, to, to, to just extend in, in tremendous measure our, our satisfaction in your grace and in your mercy, our delight in your ways. We need you to work in us so that our sense of your love for us, our knowledge of you and our sense of your grace towards us drives out, pushes back all of those temptations that give rise to the lust of our passions that do nothing but end in dishonoring of others and disregard of you. I feel so critically in this, the need for your work. I can't do it. I can't can't do it on my own. We need your Holy Spirit to continue the work with which you have committed yourself to. And we ask that you would would bring this delight to our hearts in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.